as you turn to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, also turn, turn to Luke chapter 10 while you're at it and keep your, uh, your thumb there. Um, my wife and I came here in 2001, and uh, I remember, you know, Eve Schultz? Eve Schultz, anybody know Eve, Eve Schultz? So she was working for Compass Care at the time. At the time, it was called Crisis Pregnancy Services. And we pulled into our, the driveway of the house in which we were going to be living in Scottsville uh, after driving, I don't know how many hours from Florida. Florida, yes. We came here from Florida. And um, she was there with her smiling face and ready and willing to, to help us unload and, and do whatever is necessary. I remember at that time she said, oh, by the way, um, you have a speaking engagement. I haven't, even, I haven't even been to the office yet. And uh, it was at Gates Wesleyan Church. She said, well, don't worry, I'll be there. Is it okay? I mean, would you, are you, are you, uh, would you be able to? I said, sure, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And uh, so my wife and I, with our, at that time we had two children, um, Isaac and Jonathan. Jonathan was a baby. Uh, Isaac is now 20. Jonathan is now um, uh, 16 and uh, learning to drive. So pray for us now. Um, he does a good job. And uh, so anyway, we went to Gates Wesleyan Church. Okay, you know, you've probably been there. So the, the church, fantastic group of people, very hospitable. And I said, I just drove in uh, from Florida. Uh, I, think it, I think it was the, the following day. I was supposed to speak the following day. So I just drove in from Florida, and, um, and we, came, you, we came from a, a very small town there. I was pastoring a church. You probably have never heard of it. How many here have ever heard of Brooksville, Florida? And everybody in the church raises their hand. <laughs> I thought it was a big joke. I thought Eve was pulling a joke on me or something like, well, how, how did that happen? How does everybody here of a small town in Brooksville called Brooksville, Florida? Well, it turns out it's the, the retirement community for the Wesleyan Church. They never went to a Baptist church. <clears throat> um, but anyway, uh, we now have 10 children. And um, yeah, some, some people say, well, how, do, you know, you do, do you know how that happens? <laughs> yes, I do. And, and so every time Linda and I go to a bed and breakfast, we, call the, we go to this bed and breakfast called, um, what's that hospital over there, Park Ridge? And they send us home with a baby. <laughs> it's also a very expensive bed and breakfast, so I wouldn't recommend it. <clears throat> but uh, no, we're, we're blessed to have, uh, to have the children we do. And um, so uh, here we are. The current situation in the world today is dire. There are 50 million abortions that occur globally every single year. In the United States, there are about a million abortions that occur every single year. We don't know exactly how many. It's uh, somewhere between 800,000 and a million. The, the reporting is difficult because some states, like California, for example, refuses to report. And we know for a fact that they're one of the largest abortion providers. Um, and New York State is the abortion capital of the U.S. There are more abortions that occur here on a per capita basis than anywhere else in the country. Monroe County is an abortion hub. Rochester is a place where women come from all over, all the surrounding counties, uh, to get their abortions. So um, most counties in New York State do not have abortionists. So what they do is they, 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 um, they, they go to these abortion hubs, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, New York City, to get their abortions. So while you see uh, abortions are reported at, 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 at every county, um, they're, they're, they're reported based on the county of permanent residence, so where the woman lives. That's how they're reported. Um, but women, women are, are not so much concerned about the, the big picture, the big, the big statistic. They're concerned about their immediate crisis. She's overwhelmed. What's my parents going to say? What my boy, what's my boyfriend going to do? Uh, what about 
medical care? What about child care? What about finances? What about housing? Et cetera, et cetera. It all hits her like a wave, and she's in fight-or-flight mode. I'm stuck. I'm trapped. I've got no other choice. I need to have an abortion. That's what she says. I need to have an abortion. Does that sound like choice to you? Does that sound like empowerment? Does that sound like freedom? That's the rhetoric, but it's all propaganda. On the ground, when a woman is facing an unplanned pregnancy, she is not free. She is not empowered. She is offered one solution, and it is a solution of despair, and a solution of death, and a solution that says, we don't want to support you. We don't want to be involved in your life. We'll give you an abortion. You go along your way. That's what abortion represents. It represents a society of abandonment. She is on her own, and she feels it most acutely when she's facing an unplanned pregnancy. So there are three basic uh, tensions that drive a woman to get an abortion. 10 10 or 15 years ago, the primary tension that drove a woman to get an abortion was guilt versus shame. Guilt versus ending the life of a child versus the shame of her community finding out she's pregnant. And those women were fairly um, easy to work with because all you had to do was um, demonstrate the humanity of the child in a very positive way using ultrasound technology. And she would say, wow, I, I, can't, I just can't bring myself to end the life of this child. And so guilt would win, interestingly enough, and she would have the baby. If shame wins, she always had the abortion. If she couldn't, buy, she, if she couldn't bear facing her family or her friends or whatever, her church, she would have the abortion. Guilt versus shame. Do you see that? Well, that tension is all but an echo now. It's all, that's, that's the way it used to be. Now the primary tension is different. What drives a woman to get an abortion is my life versus the baby's life. My life as I planned it, my life as I want it, my life um, as it is versus the baby's life. Someone's going to die, and it's not going to be me today. That's the tragic choice. This is the, the tension that's going through her mind. It's a very consumeristic mentality. Do you see the difference? They're very, it's a much different crowd. It's a much more difficult uh, patient to reach and serve than it was a few years ago. Is this my water? Can I have this water? Mind if I? Thank you very much. So um, I, was, I was talking with a pastor um, several years ago, um, a black pastor from the inner city, and he's at our office, and he said, Jim, why are you pro-life? It's the first time anybody ever asked me that question. Why are you pro-life? So I was kind of taken aback, and I said, "Well, uh, I guess uh, I mean I guess I, I'd say I'm pro-life because I'm a Christian." Done, right? He said, "No, no, no, that's not that's not enough. I know a lot of Christians who aren't pro-life. A lot of them go to my church. Why are you pro-life?" So he pushed me further. He wouldn't let me. Get, he wouldn't. He wouldn't let it go. I said, "Well, <clears throat> I guess I, I guess I'd say I'm pro-life because of the gospel." And he said, tell me more. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by your pro-life because of the gospel? So I said, it goes back to a story, a particular story. And there's really two stories that I want to share with you today uh, about the life of Christ. But this, this one that I, I share with him. Um, it's in Mark chapter 10. And it goes like this. You've heard this before. And they were bringing children to him, verse 13, so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands 
upon them. This is the first time in all of recorded scripture and the only place where Jesus is angry with all 12 disciples at the same time. Not just Peter. All 12 of them. And he's angry. Indignant is the word. He is livid. I mean, maybe his face got red. I don't even know what that looks like on the face of Jesus, right? But he's in control. Jesus is never out of control. But he is super angry. Like, what are you doing? We've been together this long and you still don't get it. You don't understand what's happening here. And he said two things in his anger, two statements that mean the same thing. Permit the children to come to me, which is a command. It's an aorist tense, so starting now and continuing on, indefinitely in the future. If you call yourself a disciple of mine, you are to do this thing. What is it? Permit the children to come to me. And the second one is, is uh, it's, in the, uh, it's a participle, infinitive participle, meaning for all, the not, for all the times you find yourself in the now, you are to do this thing. Like now and now and now. Right? It's always now. Or you are to do this thing. Well, what is that thing? Stop it. That's the force of the language. Would you just knock it off? Do not hinder them is the force of the phrase. Make sure this doesn't ever happen again. Right? You, 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 those of you that have children have been indignant. Right? Those of you, oh, let me qualify that. Those of you that have boys have been indignant. <clears throat> Did you get off the kitchen table? It's not jumping. Uh, anyway, uh, there's lots of things we can be indignant about. I'm sure you remember the, the indignancy on the face of your mother, perhaps, boys. Um, I remember the, the indignancy on the face of my mother. Um, and it's, 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 it's a blessing because I learned. I learned a great deal from the indignancy, didn't I? Didn't you? It was a point. It was an exclamation point. And here, Jesus is making an exclamation point. And it has to do with children. And then he tells them why. Now remember now, he stops what he's doing, whatever that is, and there's presumably people around, because there's always people around. And so everybody's seeing his 12 disciples getting rebuked. Everybody's seeing this anger. Everybody's seeing who, which, you know, how he's directing his anger. Jesus uses anger in very specific ways. He's very intentional about it. Remember that time he, uh, well, there's a couple times that he intentionally he made a whip? Jesus made the whip. And then he took it in, and he used it. Remember that? Money changers? Um, <clears throat> there's a, a holy righteous and indignancy that, that burns. And he said, you ought to know better. And what's, what is it? Why did he say this? Because he's a master teacher. He tells them. He says this. Uh, For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And I know that they're babies because the, the parallel passage in Luke says uses the word for infant. And uh, what is it about the baby, the infant in arms, that uh, makes them the commensurate citizen of heaven? What is it about a baby that makes them uniquely uh, suited to be a, a perfect example of somebody who's a member of God's kingdom? They're helpless. Somebody said that. They are dependent. They're absolutely and totally dependent on, God, on, on, on their parents. And so they have no voice. They have no power. They have no resources of their own. They have no standing in society. Someone must pick up their cause. Unless it was their parents... Uh, taking responsibility for their every waking moment, they would die of exposure within days or hours. And Jesus looks at them and says, look, that baby is you. That baby is you. Before a holy God, we have no standing as sinners. We have no voice. We have no power. We have no resources of our own. 
unless someone picks up our cause and spends his resources on our behalf before God the Father, uses his voice on our behalf before God the Father, uses his standing on our behalf, we will die of exposure to our sin. And he says, that baby is you. That's why you see Christians always at the forefront of the great social injustices throughout history. Because we implicitly understand that the weak and the vulnerable of this world were us. They were me. They were, they were, they were you. Before, before we understood who God is and our, our, our sorry condition. And that he pulled us out of the darkness and despair and gave us hope for eternity. And says, now look, you have a newfound power because of the cross of Christ, him spending his resources in his life and, and becoming sin, nailing it to killing sin on the cross, defeating death, rising from the grave, demonstrating that death is no more. We are to spend that newfound power, not on ourselves, but on those that need it most as little Christ, little redeemers, partnering with him to bring the kingdom of God to this world. So, there's another story in Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> you, you, this is also a very familiar story I'm sure you're aware of. There are, there are people out there that say, I get the gospel, I understand the gospel, that makes sense to me, but, that, but why, I, don't I, I, still don't, I still don't see the connection between babies. I mean, you're talking about babies that have already been born, right, Jim? Hasn't the Supreme Court already ruled on this? Isn't this settled morality? By the way, um, don't take your moral cues from the Supreme Court. Who said amen? Who said that? Yeah, say it a little louder for me. Yeah. Never take your moral cues from the government uh, or from a, a particular branch of government uh, because they're often wrong. And the Church of Christ, our very life and our words are a prophetic statement of the truth of what it means to be human and the truth of what it means to live life. And the way in which we live our lives today is the way in which we're going to be expected to live our lives for the rest of eternity. So start early. Luke chapter 10, he says, um, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, look, uh, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, verse 25, saying, teacher, he's putting Jesus to the test, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What's the key? And, and he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. By the way, there's, Jesus has presumably asked this question on a number of occasions because scribes and Pharisees were all around, and they always wanted to know from Jesus' perspective, you know, about this and that and the thing. Well, there's one time in another passage in one of the other Gospels when uh, another lawyer was asking Jesus the same question. What, what is the greatest commandment? In fact, it was, it was, he, was asked it, he asked it in the plural. What is, what's the greatest set of commandments, right? Because there was this, they, they would have these like concentric circles of, of, of commands that the Pharisees or whatever would write, and they would wrap around, and they would add to uh, the, 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 the law and make it more and more difficult for people to actually you know, come to God. 
And that's why Jesus was so angry with the Pharisees so, so much, because they're they creating barriers to God instead of opening the doors to him. And so uh, here you have this, this Pharisee asking Jesus, what's the greatest set of commandments? And Jesus answers in a singular. Remember this? And he says basically the same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. First, it's your heart first. But did you know the heart is an organ of knowing? Paul talks about it a lot. You can, you can know beyond your brain. Your brain always comes last. Interestingly enough, it's listed last. And we always, as Westerners, we always want to come to God with our brain first. But you can't get to God with your brain. If you could get to God with your, with your brain, your brain would be as big as God, and that would make you God. You can't comprehend God with, an, with a finite organ. You can only comprehend God as he reveals himself to you with the, the organ of eternity, the center of your very being, your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, with all your mind. And so um, the second one, Jesus says in, in this particular parallel passage that I'm referring to, the deuteros is like the first one. The, the second one, the sub one, the one that's below it, is just like the one above it. Deuteros is just like, or homeos, the one above it. He says the second command is like the first one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Loving your neighbor is the same, represents your love for God. To the extent or to the degree that you demonstrate your love for your neighbor is the extent to the degree that, you know, it's pretty easy to see that you love God. And when you do love God, you will love your neighbor. Okay, I get it. Well, what does, this, what does the scribe say? The scribe says, okay, um, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he's looking around. He's probably got people, you know, he's like, okay, I'm going to go test Jesus now, see what he says about this. And he's, they're, all, they're all watching. He's got, he's, got, he's got some pride here. And he says, well, wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And there begins the problem. Who is my neighbor? Yeah, but who's my neighbor? And then, and then Jesus tells him who his neighbor is by giving him the parable of the Good Samaritan. You all know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember? The Samaritan's walking down. So you've got this guy that gets beat up and left for dead on the side of the road. And the priest walks by and he's like, ah. And he goes by and crosses over on the other side and walks past. Levi comes by and he crosses around goes by on the other side. And then the Samaritan comes by. And the Samaritan spends all of his resources, he spends his resources to bring this guy back to health. Right? Puts him on his donkey. Brings him over to this innkeeper and says, hey, I'm going to pay you whatever, you, whatever it costs. You make sure he gets better. And then Jesus asks the, 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 the scribe or the lawyer, who is, this, who, who is a neighbor to this man? And the scribe couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan because the Samaritan was a second-class citizen. But it was, it was the man who helped the other man. That's what he said. Right? And he said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Well, look... And he, he intentionally used a subclass of human in this lawyer's mind. Yeah, but who's my neighbor? Who are you to decide who your neighbor is? In, in James chapter uh, 2, he describes uh, something uh, similar. Actually, he elucidates this royal command. And the royal command is what? The royal command is to love uh, your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal command. And by royal command, but whenever you hear the word royal command uh, or the phrase royal command, it means that it, it, it's emanating from, from, from the very essence or very center of who God is. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are royal commands. These are, these are commands that, 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 uh, that uh, 
come from God and speak directly to your soul about who it is you are in relationship to God and therefore how you should behave towards one another. And in, in James chapter 2, he says, look, verse 8, if, uh, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, there's the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now here's the catch. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What is the, the opposite of loving your neighbor? It is not hating him. The opposite of loving your neighbor is demonstrating or showing partiality or favoritism. You become the standard by which you measure all people to determine who qualifies for your favor and who does not qualify for your favor. That does not fly as loving your neighbor. That makes you God. God is the one that determines who is a human and who is not a human. Every single neighbor in this world, every single person in this world is our neighbor. We have no right to determine who qualifies as a person and who does not qualify as a person. Who qualifies as our neighbor and who does not qualify as our neighbor. Anybody that God in his sovereignty brings into our life qualifies as our neighbor. If they have human DNA, from conception to natural death, they are our neighbor. Interestingly enough, 1973 rolls around and uh, a group of lawyers get together and they ask a question. And the question is, who is a person? 1973, the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade. The primary question that the entire case hinged on was, is a, is a preborn child a person? That's eerily similar to, who is my neighbor? And death followed. Anytime we begin to, to, to qualify or to parse out which humans are fully human and which humans are not, which humans qualify for our, our favor and which ones don't, which ones qualify for protection under the law and which ones don't, we are on very thin ice and about to fall through to our own demise as a society. And so there is no difference between a child in the womb and an old man dying on his deathbed except for one thing, maturity. Maturity. And what, are are you fully mature? Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you fully mature? Physically, are you fully mature? Well, the answer is no. Wherever you are in life, your DNA is, is, is controlling your aging process. Did you know that? You are in the process of maturing. At what point did you start being a human? At what point will you stop being a human? Well, you started being a human when God said so at conception, and you will stop when God says so, your physical life, but will be raised again to newness of life. You will never stop if you are in Christ, being a human. In fact, you could say you'll never stop being a human, period. Right? But in Christ, we will be renewed, and, our, and, 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 and all vestiges of, of, of sin will be routed out, rooted out, of our lives, even to the, to, the, to, the, to the raising of our bodies to newness of life forevermore. This is the power of Christ and his cross, and we can live it out today. We, can, we, are, we have the honor and privilege of speaking life into, into a, a, a dark and dying world. We know what light is, and when we walk, walk into a dark situa- situation, the light of Christ can dispel all darkness. 
we can bring his hope um, to anybody. And when, when, when it comes to Compass Care, I, I just I, I love the, the, the organizational assumptions. We, we have one of the greatest uh, staff in the world. And I don't say that out of bravado. I really actually mean that because I have a, 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 the privilege of, of training other pregnancy centers and going around and knowing what's going on in different parts of the, of the country and world. And we, we really do have a staff that, that loves Jesus Christ above all things. And they're in it because of their love for him. That's why they're in it. They're, they're there on principle because every life reflects the image of God and is deserving of, of protection. Every life is equally valuable. Christians have the most liberal definition of what it means to be human. Every single human being is equally valuable. Without qualification, the most conservative view of the definition of humanity is found in progressive circles. Be wary of them. Because then someone will plan your death in the not-too-distant future. Um, there's two organizational assumptions about Compass Care uh, that Compass Care uses uh, to make decisions. And that one of them, in terms of serving patients, is that not a sane woman alive wants to have an abortion. Let me say that again, because it's, it's absolutely essential that the nurses understand this and believe this when they walk into that, to that clinical office uh, when, the, when there's a patient in there. Not a sane woman alive wants to have an abortion. No matter what she says, no matter what circumstances she's in, not a sane woman alive wants to have an abortion. They don't exist. It's not in her DNA. So we've got to find a way to give her a vision of her future after having had a child. We've got to find a way to give her the support and the security that she needs in order to have this baby. We've got to be Christ to her. And not just give her the support and security that she needs. We need to treat her as a whole human being, not just a complex set of biochemical reactions like the rest of medical care. We're saying, no, we're going to treat you as a whole human being and recognize that you have a purpose deeper and more important than your career, deeper and more important than what you want from your life over the next two or three years out of school, deeper and more important than what you think is, is comfortable or fun. She has a spiritual significance that she may not even be aware of. And so we give her the opportunity to understand what it means to be human in Christ, to reflect his image and his glory, and to submit her life to him, and to repent of her sins as we all have, and become self-reflective. And so uh, one of the things that Compass Care does is we self-reflect. We have what's called a continuous improvement model. Uh, Pastor talked about it uh, briefly. We're constantly evaluating how we're doing. Uh, we don't trust that the, what, what's working today is going to work tomorrow because we're, we're, trying, we're, we're trying to hit a moving target. Culture is always changing. The expectations of the patients are always changing. But we can't compromise on the mission of erasing the need for abortion one woman at a time. So the manner in which the services are provided are just as important as the services themselves. This is our second organizational assumption, also critical. Not just uh, not, not only do we understand that not a sane woman alive wants an abortion, which is a tremendous encouragement to our nurses, because now they're working with, uh, with them instead of against them, right? That's a big, big difference. But the second organizational assumption is, is, is big, too. Um, the manner in which services are provided are just as important as the services themselves. Because there is no formula, there is no quick fix, there is no silver bullet, there is no uh, 
panacea. Every woman's circumstance is different. And the way they respond to an ultrasound scan is going to be different. Ultrasound scans are not as powerful as they used to be. Yes, they humanize the child. But given the way the, the, the current culture has gone further and further away from what it means from, from Christianity, uh, they can compartmentalize their behavior from morality. They might even know, hey, this is, this is wrong, but I still have to uh, uh, abort anyway. They might even say these things. And so we say, look, uh, the way we looked uh, yesterday, the way we served patients yesterday, may, hopefully will look different a year from now because we always want to be on the cutting edge of helping women have their babies. And so our goal this year is to see, uh, in the coming years, is to see 400 women choose to have their babies. And, and, and that's not an arbitrary number. That's a, that's a meaningful number to us, 400. Right now we're at 100 and, what did Daniel say? 180-something. 185. I think we're actually higher than that now, but, um, uh, and, and over 50 women have, have prayed to uh, submit their lives to Christ so far this year. Well, we say 400 because... Um, Rochester, as, as we've said, is an abortion hub. This is where women come to get abortions. And an abortion hub is defined by two metrics. A 16% or higher abortion rate means 16% or more of, of pregnancies end in abortion. And a, the second metric is more than 1,500 abortions every year. Okay. Well, in Monroe County, we've seen that number cut in half in eight years. Okay. So now we're, we're at 20%. Uh, abortion rate, and 1,900 abortions. 400 is the magic number. If we And it's doable. We can get there. We're at, a, this year, this, so far this year, we're at 100, uh, close to 190. And uh, if we just double that, double that in one year, Monroe County would no longer be an abortion hub. And it would, it, so, so what that means is abortionists would have to change their business model, go out of business, uh, reduce their hours, et cetera, et cetera, which are, we're already seeing them do. But we want to see, we want to see uh, that happen even more quickly than it has been. And it's definitely possible within a very short period of time. So um, pray, pray for us. Pray for the women that come to see us. Uh, and, and, and pray that um, we, we, can, we, we, can, we can figure this out and that by God's grace and his wisdom, uh, this, we, can, we can erase the need for abortion in Rochester. And th- see Rochester become what, the most pro-life, pro-family town in the United States. Um, and, and then we can shout it from the rooftops and tell other, other cities how to do it. Um, so thank you very much for your commitment. Thank you very much for your dedication, your prayers. Uh, we've been doing this together. It's because of the church. Compass Care represents a move of the church. This isn't just a bunch of people getting together disparately, saying, hey, we're interested in this issue. This is the church getting together, saying, we want to do something about this. And that's manifesting at Compass Care. So thank you very much. Uh, for all that you do. Thank you for your prayers and for your support. God bless.